very much. I'll just read uh, a paper and then get into discussion. That's what I was told was the received method. Um, so to begin, the rise of virtue ethics in the past decades has led to a lot of treatments of the cardinal and theological virtues. Justice, prudence, courage, charity, and the rest have gotten a lot of press in the guild. But one ship hasn't been lifted by this rising tide, and it's the theological virtue of hope. Its preoccupation with what we loosely call heaven is often derided as an opiate for earthly misery, a foothold for gloomy asceticism, a distraction from social justice, and a break on human progress. Hope's suspected otherworldliness and obscurantism has made it a stock target of culture despisers, from Celsus and Hume to Marx and Russell. And a passage from Rousseau strikes the characteristic note. He says, The country of the Christian is not of this world. This short life counts for so little in their eyes that for Christians the essential thing is to get to heaven and out of this valley of sorrows. And combined with eschatological squeamishness, amongst many moral theologians at least, the result is that reflection on hope as a theological virtue has been fairly neglected. But ironically, alongside this neglect, there's been a growing sense that we very much need more hope, not less of it. We live in the wake of a worldwide financial crisis, ecological bad news is plentiful, human dignity is flouted, geopolitical instability abounds, and democratic vitality and social justice have lost ground to plutocratic interests and political cynicism. With so many anxieties in economics, politics, and society, the Western cultural mood, I think it's fair to say, is soured, and some fears of permanent decline have even set in. So the, the need for renewed hopefulness is obvious, and this has led to a casting about for sources of revitalization. <coughs> but Christian hope specifically strikes many as the kind of hope they don't want. In one liturgical formula, hope anticipates, quote, those heavenly habitations where the souls of them that sleep in the Lord Jesus enjoy perpetual rest and felicity, unquote. Now, obviously, this isn't the solution to our general hope deficit, which most people would reach for first. And many worry that religious hope isn't just useless, but a positive menace, distracting from progress and social justice by averting our gaze towards eternity. So without aiming at an overall theory of social identity or Christian citizenship, I want to argue that virtuous hope doesn't detract from this life and world, but that there's a complicated way in which it acknowledges their integrity and honors their goodness, taking up and ordaining the earthly projects of the virtues to the eschaton itself. I want to make this point by addressing several related questions. So the first major question is whether theological hope has its own internal reasons to pursue the good of the earthly city, whether it's committed to benefit the earthly city, or whether it, so to speak, has to be augmented or corrected by more this-worldly virtues like charity and justice. The second question is whether hope allows us to identify with the earthly city in specific forms, such as culture and nation. The third question is whether hope may even envision and work for the redemption of our local and social identities themselves in the eschaton. But to clarify, I'm not using the term earthly city here in the Augustinian or normative sense of the city of the world opposed to the city of God. I'm using the earthly city in the quotidian or descriptive sense of all the neighbors with whom we share bonds. 
In examining these questions, I'll draw generously on St. Thomas Aquinas, just because his thought on hope, I think, is the best from which to branch out, especially in ethics. Partly because I'm discussing hope as a virtue, and partly because my work tends to be on questions of character, my approach will overlap with what's usually called virtue ethics. So, with an approach focused less on duties, rules, and consequences, and more on agency, practical reason, character, and the good life. Well, Aquinas inherited a tradition of Latin theology whose acknowledged authority was Augustine and whose medieval benchmark was Peter Lombard. Aquinas took a serious interest in hope from his early graduate school days. He defined hope's object this way. It's, quote, a future good possible but arduous to attain. Specifically, Christian hope for Aquinas is a virtue rather than a feeling or a species of optimism. In particular, it's a virtue of the will, which accounts for its staying power and resilience. But hope, in his view, isn't a natural or acquired virtue, which formed through habituation and effort, ordains us to temporal goods. In his view, hope is a supernatural or infused virtue, which poured out by grace, orients us specifically to eternal life. Like faith and charity, hope is also a theological virtue, in that its immediate object is God. But whereas faith knows God as first truth, and charity loves God as goodness as such, hope loves God as our own personal good, namely as our own perfection, well-being, and beatitude. So there's a self-interestedness built into hope. Now, hope works in two ways, according to Aquinas, and its object is twofold. First, hope's end, or final cause, is eternal life, which consists in the enjoyment of God. Second, hope's means, or what he calls efficient cause, is grace, on whose help hope relies. So by hope's final cause, or end, we committedly seek and confidently expect to find perfect beatitude in God, and this preserves us from the vice of despair, one of the vices opposed to hope. By hope's efficient cause, or means, we trust, rely, depend upon God's promises and grace to reach that goal, And this fends off the equal and opposed vice of presumption. So hope's goal is eternal happiness attained through the beatific vision of God, which is precisely a future good possible but arduous to attain. In medieval terminology, the convert ceases to be homo ero, the human wanderer, lost in the forest or mazes of serious sin. He or she is regenerated as homo viator, the human wayfare on the journey or pilgrimage to eternal life. Now this registers both a cheerful and a cautionary note. Instead of going nowhere, we're on the way or in via. But by the same token, we haven't yet arrived. As with Dante, after he leaves the dark wood, there's a challenging journey for the Christian to make. He or she hasn't yet become homo comprehensor, the possessor of perfect beatitude in the heavenly city, or in patria. And the New Testament reminds us that, quote, here we have no lasting city, but we seek one which is to come, unquote. This raises obvious tensions in terms of the agent's identity as a sort of dual citizen entangled in two civic memberships. Since these cities often represent competing loyalties, most dramatically seen in martyrdom, This forces us to think through the relationship between those identities and the prospects for social and ecclesial tension they involve. 
Christianity has historically viewed the world, in some sense, as a tension, a problem, or even an adversary. In Luke's Gospel, the children of the world are sharply distinguished from the children of the light. John's Gospel calls the devil the ruler of this world who must be cast out. Later in the same Gospel, Christ says that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth and ominously tells his disciples, quote, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first, because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you, unquote. But it isn't immediately clear why the world should be described so pejoratively. Didn't God create the world and in Genesis call it very good? More baffling, how is one to square the scriptural uh, claim that God so loved the world with the caution to love not the world in the same Gospel of John? The fear that something quasi-Manichaean is going on here makes it tempting but facile, I think, to ignore the tension. Now, most of the historical tradition interpreted this ambivalence through 1 John chapter 2, where it says, All that is in the world, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father. Unquote. Now, this is the benefit of making somewhat clear what's going on. The world, in the pejorative sense, refers not to the physical earth, the human race, or human culture. It's shorthand for the widespread pursuit of materialistic ends such as money, status, and power, and their institutionalized configurations and all that those inflict society with. Later traditions specified this as worldly sin or worldliness, and you might remember the old baptismal formula where it says, you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the sense of the world here. A, a forgotten <laughs> the key moral category. Worldliness is the excessive attachment to external and this-worldly goods such as wealth, reputation, honors, power, status, and influence. By its very nature, it calls the journey of hope to a halt through forms of greed and ambition which reject the eschatological good as vague, boring, remote, and even threatening. So in general terms, this is the world that Christians are in, but supposed to not be of. But that very alienation might free us to be for the world with respect to social justice and other social goods, which worldliness by its nature impedes. This opens up at least the possibility that hope may be contramundum in a highly qualified sense that frees us to be pro-mundo in another and much more important sense. Now, since this point is schematic, it may rightly be asked what this looks like considered as a way of life. And concretely, I suggest it's best sketched in the Beatitudes. Traits like poverty of spirit and meekness obviously represent values at odds with worldliness. Elsewhere, I suggest the Beatitudes depict the paradigmatic form of the virtue of hope displayed in a life, one in which we pursue the kingdom of heaven while hungering and thirsting for justice. Understood this way, the virtue of hope isn't apathetic, otherworldly in some sort of suspicious sense or narcissistic, it actually builds social commitments into its eschatological purposes. So in answer to my first question, I think hope isn't just compatible with the goods of the earthly city, but reinforces our commitment to them. But this cheerful point only gets us so far. To say that hope gives reasons to benefit the earthly city doesn't of itself imply that the hopeful will identify with it. Benefactors and beneficiaries are frequently distinct. 
If you benefit Syrian refugees, you haven't therefore become one. And this brings us to a more subtle set of tensions. Early Christians often sound deeply alienated from the social context that they very much seek to benefit. To take just one example, the letter to the Hebrews notes with approval the worldly alienation of Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, all of whom it says, quote, acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, unquote. Now, this isn't credited to their own idiosyncrasies, but is represented as highly reasonable, quote, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one, unquote, Hebrews 11.13. The early church reinforced these trends. The second century epistle to Diognetus famously said that Christians, quote, reside in their own ha homelands, but as if they were foreigners. They are in the world, but not of the world, that famous phrase, unquote. This helped fashion the image of Christians as homo viator, a human wayfare or pilgrim who's just passing through this world en route to the heavenly city. Now, the, the resulting impression is that the hopeful may not see themselves as really belonging to earthly society in any thick sense. Honoring Caesar and paying taxes wouldn't necessarily alter this. Even the justice and mercy of the Beatitudes might not. You can benefit a place without claiming membership within it, or at least any membership that deeply matters to you. So, this is the second question. Does hope seriously followed encourage, implicitly, alienation from family, town, community, culture, and civil society more generally? That's the question I mostly want to explore. <clears throat> now, it's, it's certainly true that hope in its more pessimistic, <clears throat> realistic, and platonic inflections does hate heavily alienate. Much of the tradition from many sermons of Augustine, to the rule of St. Benedict, to the imitation of Christ, regards society in most moods as the waters of Babylon, where you sit down and weep and pine for the new Jerusalem. But Aquinas strikes a subtly different tone. The Dominicans were formed in part to combat the Cathars, a kind of Manichaean resurgence who took the world and the body to be evil. So partly in response to this, Aquinas labors more heavily than usual to explain the good of creation and embodiment, and his account sees us as quite properly entangled in local and social space. <clears throat> Drawing on Aristotle, Aquinas sees humans as body-soul composites, or psychosomatic unities, stressing our essential embodiment so far as to bluntly state, quote, my soul is not I, anima mea non est ego, and insisting that death breaks human nature apart, making strictly necessary the resurrection for us to be humans at all. Now, for essentially embodied beings, our identity will be importantly shaped by the time and place of our lives, making our earthly and social identities true parts of ourselves from which we just cannot escape. Alistair MacIntyre put this point well, quote, For the Platonist, as for the Cartesian, the soul preceding all bodily and social existence must indeed possess an identity prior to all social roles. But for the Catholic Christian, as earlier for the Aristotelian, the body and the soul are not two linked substances. I am my body, and my body is social, born to those parents in this community with a specific social identity. Unquote. Sorry, I'm So, just by being human, we already are of the world, and not just in the world, in important respects. 
But taken alone, this point doesn't get us very far, though it does prevent a wrong turn at the outset. It entails that any effort to identify with a dualistic conception of the self, which just transcends social space and culture, is ruled out as strictly incoherent. But recall the earlier point that we are to be alienated from what the tradition calls the world in the sense of worldly sin or worldliness, and which it identified with the world in the New Testament's pejorative sense of the term, as of the cosmos. Now this complicates the account. Informed by their eschatology, Christians should oppose systemic preoccupations with wealth, ambition, reputation, and domination. And that witness often comes with a social cost. The more the values, attitudes, habits, and way of life of a society are worldly in this specific sense, the more Christians will see the need to object to deeply ingrained habits of their own society. And the risk, of course, is at least partial social alienation. Suppose one tries to lead a hopeful life shaped by poverty of spirit and the Beatitudes in a contemporary business school, political party, sixth form, sports league, law firm, sales department, or other ambitious workplace, to name just a few examples. Allowing for happy exceptions, those who pursue this way of life will frequently grate against innumerable activities, decisions, policies, and conversational staples, which are the basic career and social conductors for that context. So even without seeking it, the Christian hopeful may find themselves ill-sorted in many social practices and institutions, and a degree of social alienation is at that point a given. The real question, though, is how the hopeful should respond. Many have responded by despairing of society and withdrawing into sects or subcultures. To say nothing of heretical movements from the Gnostics to the Cathars, this would include figures such as Tertullian, Thomas Akempis, and Leo Tolstoy, and the more radical fringes of Egyptian and medieval monasticism, up to many Amish, Mennonite, and contemporary sects and doomsday cults. But this isn't Aquinas' approach. He believes we have an essential inclination toward human sociability. Upon this, the virtue of justice is built. And one sub-virtue of justice is what he calls pietas, which he takes from Cicero, filtered through Augustine. Pietas demands that reverence and regard be shown to our parents as the primary sources of our birth and upbringing. Pietas, he believes, is demanded by the fourth commandment of the Decalogue, and it's owed by extension to non-parental sources of life, support, and nourishment. In addition to parents, pietas should be given, he says, quote, to our native land, our patria. This includes honor to all our fellow citizens and to all the friends of our native land, unquote. So, not only in his view is it impossible to escape <coughs> one's social identity, the failure to acknowledge a certain indebtedness to the community that helped nourish and rear you is itself unjust. The implication is that the Christian hopeful truly are dual citizens. Homo viator may seek eternal citizenship in the city of God, but she or he owes honor to the earthly city analogous to the honor shown toward parents, which you show even when you disagree with them, since disowning that city, like disowning one's parents, is perhaps the grandest gesture of refusing honor. The effort to renounce membership in the earthly city is, from this perspective, both incoherent and unjust. So any alienation we're landed with due to our Christian witness should therefore not be valorized, 
but taken as an unavoidable share in the cross. Even apart from the contextual improbabilities it would involve, one can't respond to the hope-world tension by simply transferring one's social membership out of one's homeland, say, and into the church, as Stanley Hauerwas is sometimes accused of doing. This rules out church-world or related forms of dualism. It also makes a crucial difference to how the hopeful should deal with any alienation they encounter. It implies that we shouldn't seek into the retaliatory pride and resentment which lead to an undue martyr, saint, or hero complex. To the degree alienation exists, temptations to exaggerate its extent must be fought, or a martyr complex combined with the view of society as a massa damnata may result. If piety and social hope commend membership in one's society, then hope requires persistent integration where possible. What Aquinas says about Christ's manner of life on earth is quite instructive here. He asks why Christ wasn't a hermit or an extreme ascetic like his cousin John the Baptist. Why is it, given the counterexample of so many prophets and saints, that, quote, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, unquote? Aquinas answers, quote, it was in keeping with the end of becoming human that Christ shouldn't lead a solitary life but should associate with others. Now it's most fitting that he who associates with others should conform to their manner of living where possible. According to the words of the Apostle, I became all things to all men. And therefore it was most fitting that Christ should conform to others in innocent matters, since common ground increases love and fellowship. This is a judicious model, I think, for the hopeful. Should their way of life lead to partial alienation from the social body, the fitting response isn't to withdraw further out of resentful indignation or compensatory pride, not to construe ourselves as the elect standing over and above the ungodly. It's to persist in identification and renew the effort to integrate in areas where we may. On Aquinas' reading, Christ conformed to the local manner of living in part by attending dinner parties and not refusing a glass of wine. The hopeful may do so by any number of social and cultural practices which express and reinforce membership in their people. Where pietas is present in earnest, such expression should be perfectly genuine rather than feigned. Such sincere identification will somehow be bound up, as George Orwell says, with cultural symbols, places, practices, and objects of love. In his essay, Socialism and the English Genius, he suggests this could range widely. In his view, quote, from the plays of Shakespeare and a fondness for traditional English Christmas to the pub, the football match, the back garden, the fireside, and the nice cup of tea. <laughs> Above all, Orwell says, it is your civilization, it is you. The suet puddings and the red pillar boxes have entered into your soul. Unquote. <laughs> now, comparable remarks could obviously be made for those belonging to any culture. <laughs> and they don't imply fantasies of superiority, but just a sense of belonging and being at home. In a distinct and morally driven way, the hopeful may further integration in their society by laboring for its common good. Here the Beatitudes are again important for how we see hope concretely lived. Entangling oneself in human brokenness and working for the common good further integrates the hopeful in a morally meaningful way, shows a tangible commitment to your society, and takes much of the sting from any remainder of alienation. Partly because service in charities, community projects, and the like benefit not just your co-religionists, 
but your neighbors and society as such. Conceivably, you might do this with a bizarre aloofness, ministering, ministering to neighbors without entering into communal ties, treating them as bare receptacles for our own moral projects. Here, Jonathan Swift, I think, is an instructive example. In addition to being a great satirist, poet, and novelist, he was the Dean of St. Patrick's in Dublin. As a religious duty, Swift regularly gave alms to the beggars outside his cathedral, but he did so with a kind of wryness. An observer said, quote, His beneficence was not graced with tenderness or civility. He relieved without pity and assisted without kindness, so that those who were fed by him could hardly love him. Unquote. <laughs> and it's difficult not to hear this without a shudder, and that's the point. Swift's contributions didn't integrate him into his society, but they should have. This is why his beneficence strikes a false note. I think the opposite behavior shown in the lives of people like St. Vincent de Paul and Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, is to contribute to your community in a way that integrates you in important ways, building personal ties and relationships instead of posing as a godlike benefactor raining down manna on the mortals below. So while the hopeful may be alienated from society in some respects, they should remain deeply committed to it. A potential but limited alienation should coexist with tenacity in trying to reintegrate and contribute to the social <coughs> body of which you're a part. By insisting on membership in one's country, by integrating where we may, by contributing and practicing a partially alienated presence that refuses antisocial flight, suspicions of misanthropic grandstanding and risk-free armchair criticism will be, to an important degree, I think, diffused. Mm. So understood in this way, such alienation as you have to adopt can itself be a mode of outreach. Objecting to worldly values, habits, and institutions may partially alienate, but this alienation itself can be a form of communication, summoning your people to recognize vicious and dehumanizing practices for what they are. That summons may be charitably expressed, specifically as a form of fraternal correction, which Aquinas saw as an act of charity. I think the cases of Dante and Rudyard Kipling are illustrative. Defending his home country from charges of injustice, Kipling wrote, quote, If England was what England seems, how we'd chuck her, but she ain't. Unquote. This suggests that identification with your country may be dropped if you judge it to be on balance corrupt. But this is like loving your children only if they're good. I think far more edifying is Chesterton's claim that Quote, love for one's country implies for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, unquote. Not only does pietas commend this approach, charity and hope do as well. Charity, which wills the good of the beloved, doesn't cease to will the good just because the beloved is an ideal. The pattern is the reverse, as suggested in the biblical phrase, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A corollary is that commitment to one's homeland may persist even if one strongly dissents from its political, economic, or other policies. But some have called into question the wisdom of even this kind of identification. In After Virtue, Alistair MacIntyre famously suggested that those who wish to continue the tradition of the virtues should treat contemporary nation-states roughly the way St. Benedict's monks treated the dying Roman Empire. The crucial moment came, he says, quote, when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman imperium and sought new forms of community 
within which the moral life could be sustained so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness, unquote. In full agreement with this view, Stanley Hauerwas has suggested that the modern nation-state has become less of a country or a homeland than a corporation. The United States is, by his reckoning, little more than a militaristic plutocracy, so that the call to make the ultimate sacrifice for your country sounds a lot, he says, quote, like being asked to die for the telephone company, unquote. <laughs> Uh, but it's necessary, as Nicholas Wolterstorff and Jeffrey Stout have pointed out, to distinguish the civic people and one's homeland from the overlapping nation-state and political institutions. The love of home, land, neighbor, and shared way of life, which shapes cultural expressions and local practices, is prior to <coughs> any specific economic, political, or bureaucratic arrangement. Obviously, the two exert much mutual influence and concretely overlap in many ways. But we should distinguish them, roughly the way we distinguish between a person and a person's office. Even if everything McIntyre and Hauerwas say is true, and I think a lot of their criticisms make sense, the social bond with one's fellow citizens must not be confused with love of the sprawling institutional bureaucracies that govern economic and political life. Refusal to cooperate with certain policies and practices of the latter doesn't require repudiation of one's commitment to the former. Recognizing this also helps disentangle pietas, or patriotism generally, from jingoism. That disentanglement in turn makes clear that love and honor of your homeland neither requires nor condones injustice to those outside of it. In contrast to Kipling, there stands Dante's committed membership in his native Florence. Beatrice in the heavenly court vouches for Dante that, quote, there is no son of the church militant with greater hope in God than him, unquote. Though second to none in hope for the heavenly patria, Dante tenderly loves his earthly patria. He calls it my sweet fold where I grew up a lamb. Though Dante is in exile, and he's very bitter about this, he doesn't forget Florence, and he pines to return to the font at which he was baptized. He denounces Florence severely at times, calling it as venal as a whore. He also refuses to bootlick to the corrupt elites who actually could recall him from exile back to Florence. Instead, he remains, quote, a foe to the wolves that prey upon it now, unquote. But crucially, this social criticism and partial alienation flow from the anxious piety of a loving son, not from the aloof disdain of a disowning one. In short, Dante is personally invested in Florence. Zealous for membership both in his native city and the heavenly city, Dante is an exemplary case of homo viator as a committed dual citizen, so to speak. He refuses the temptation to renounce either citizenship just because the dual commitment involves real tensions. Social criticism uttered from this moral space will stem from piety's solicitude and love's anxiety, not from the clinically detached and aloof moral disgust of those who feign flight from and abdicate responsibility for their social context, a move which inevitably frays social bonds and foments cynicism. So worldly values and habits which vitiate hope can't be acquiesced in, and such dissent comes typically at a social price. 
But this friction may coexist with persistent identification with one's people and a desire to see and affirm the good that is still among them. The reasonable attitude to civic membership is therefore one of virtuous ambivalence. A judicious balance must be struck between affirming and denouncing, alienating and integrating. When alienation is unavoidable, it should be expressed in terms of fraternal correction and therefore in the temper of, and mode of charity, making alienation itself, to the extent it's necessary, a mode of communication and outreach rather than a kind of withdrawal, one that summons to moral accountability while signaling the intention to lovingly persist in identifying with one's people even amid and not just until the onset of serious tension. Contrary to the suspicion of Christianity's culture despisers, such qualified alienation communicates that the hopeful aren't mere traitors in waiting or fair-weather friends of their society. Now, granted that hope that the hopeful amid ambiguities may continue to identify with the earthly city, it still leaves my last question. What stake does the virtue of hope have in that city and what might hope do for it? The primary end of theological hope is eternal beatitude in God. The earthly city then can't be hope's primary interest. Yet Aquinas' action theory allows for the idea that proximate ends may be referred to ultimate ends. His textbook example is that victory may be the ultimate end of battle, but a given tactic is a proximate end or means toward that ultimate end. Such a formulation is obvious, but a key insight there is that the proximate end participates in the ultimate end by being a motion toward it. In terms of hope, Aquinas says that earthly goods, from growing vegetables to the tasks of social justice, may become proximate ends ordained to the ultimate end of eternal life. The consequence is that earthly projects may participate in our overall movement to the beatific vision. This occurs in a lot of ways, but two are relevant at present. First, how we conduct earthly projects figures importantly into whether we will attain the beatific vision, and in what way, quality, or condition. Put bluntly, Aquinas thinks that refusing justice and charity and the belief that you can just focus on heaven is the vice of presumption opposed to hope, which puts your salvation in jeopardy. Second, this model allows us to hope that our flawed earthly projects may be redeemed and perfected by divine mercy in the eschaton. The things we loved and cared for will be fulfilled rather than abolished in a pattern of glory perfecting grace as grace perfects nature. Were this not the case, it might suggest that everything we care about in this world is, in itself, a waste of time from the perspective of hope, and that's surely a thought too many. Instead, a cosmic fulfillment and reconciliation of earthly projects is envisioned. The swords will be beaten into plowshares, Christ will make all things new, every tear will be wiped away, the leaves of the tree of life in the book of Revelation will be given for the healing of the nations. This also makes sense of the idea that it's good, rather than distracting, to pray for earthly needs and causes. For instance, give us this day our daily bread. Moreover, through the mediation of charity, we may hope for our neighbor's beatitude, and therefore for the beatitude of our fellow citizens, earthly city, and the human race generally. Since that beatitude is meant to begin in this life, though imperfectly, commitment to the common good and the happiness of our homeland is incumbent upon the hopeful. As Gaudium et Spes said, the Vatican II document, 
The expectation of a new earth must not weaken, but rather stimulate our concern for this one. For here grows the body of a new human family, a body which even now is able to give some kind of foreshadowing of the new age. Hence, while earthly progress must be carefully distinguished from the growth of Christ's kingdom, to the extent the former can contribute to the better ordering of human society, it is a vital concern to the kingdom of God." Unquote. As Gaudium et Spes suggests, grace may pervade the earthly city itself. So society is the occasion not just for the exercise of virtues like justice, it has ample scope for theological virtues such as charity. If heaven itself were conceived in eremetic terms, hope might lack any role here, since it would then have nothing but incidental interests in social existence. But Christianity has always regarded the eschaton in social terms, as a patria, a city, a communion of saints. Since the social body may be referred by hope to our ultimate end, society is part of hope's interests. The idea is that social goods and, and projects give plentiful occasion for virtues like prudence, justice, and charity. These may be ordained by the virtue of hope to our overall movement to the future good. Hence, many Christians conspicuous for theological hope were also conspicuous for social hopes. Um, for example, the, the abolitionists here in Britain, who are mostly British evangelicals and Quakers, zealously pursuing the kingdom of God while also zealously seeking to put an end to the bloody traffic of slavery. The, the work of the medieval saints who tirelessly advocated for the poor, that of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, and others who sought the kingdom of God and yet contributed to the earthly city in extraordinary fashion. I think that kind of tenacious social hope is urgently needed in our present context. The vice of despair is collective expressions, Howls of pain that take form in the available outlets of pessimism, apathy, and cynicism. In a period where severe civic and social anxieties continue rapidly to mount, widespread apathy and despair have become live threats. The great exemplars of hope responded to these challenges with something better than just optimism, with a vision that gives to this worldly project a transcendent horizon and stake while sustaining the hopeful with the confidence that grace will not be lacking and that divine help is operative in their contexts. The paradox is that this ability to keep pursuing arduous goods, after all the conventional optimists and political realists have called it a day, makes theological hope a magnificently dynamic source of social reform, as the examples of Martin Luther King, William Wilberforce, and others suggest. In a period where severe civic and social anxieties continue rapidly to mount, this can only be good news. Now, Gaudium et Spes spoke of social reform as a foreshadowing of the new age. At its best, it may be not just a movement toward the perfect friendship of the beatified communion of saints, but constitute a foretaste or premonition of it. Gaudium et Spes states, quote, after we have obeyed the Lord and in his spirit nurtured on earth the values of human dignity, brotherhood, and freedom, we will find them again, but freed of stain, burnished, and transfigured, unquote. So the beatified communion of saints will find, so to speak, the fullness of social fruition whose beginnings they help set in motion on earth. This helps to bury the view that hope in the end envisions the sheer destruction of our temporal and earthly identities 
and therefore can't be motivated to care much about them now. So to conclude, hope construes the Christian as a wayfarer or viator on the most important journey possible. But we're born entangled in a story that has already been going on for some time and acquire at birth layers of social identity bound up with family, school, club, town, culture, nation, and so forth. The Catholic maxim that grace perfects rather than abolishes nature implies by extension that the life of grace perfects and doesn't abolish social nature. Charity informs hope, and Aquinas says both that one's fellow citizens rank extremely high in the order of charity, and that this order remains in the heavenly homeland, in patria. Hope perfects our sociability in part by gathering Christians together as a pilgrim people in the church, jointly seeking the kingdom. Yet even in the church, our local cultural identities remain, and grace builds upon these. It's been suggested that the resurrection of the body may include the resurrection of social identities as our larger body. Revelation 22 claims that the nations, for example, will be healed in the eschaton, becoming fully and perfectly themselves, fulfilled rather than abolished. If so, then consider that something like William Blake's Jerusalem, while it tells an apocryphal story of England's past, may still get right the bare idea that Christ will redeem the nations themselves in their created particularities. Scripture suggests that something about the nations in their redeemed form will persist as an adornment or quality of the heavenly city itself. Quote, the glory and honor of the nation shall be brought into the heavenly city. Unquote. Revelation 21. The biblical scholar Robert Mounts interprets this as developing Isaiah 60's claim that the wealth of the nation shall come to Jerusalem. But whereas Isaiah refers to the choicest of earthly treasures, <coughs> the author of Revelation makes the wealth symbolic of spiritual riches related to human endeavor and culture, here treated as objects of love and redemption. So while the hopeful shouldn't expect an earthly kingdom or secular utopia, the belief that our social identifications may be long-term objects of redemption gives added reason for the hopeful to be socially invested and to work for reform. Lastly, it's important to stress that hope as a theological virtue is concerned directly and primarily with God and with the consummate bliss of the beatific vision. The heart is restless until it rests in God. It can't rest in heaven conceived of as a perfect Hegelian sitlichkeit or pantheistic interanimation. Yet Aquinas rightly notes that friendship befits creatures with a social nature, and so he says the glorified saints will see one another and rejoice in God in their heavenly fellowship. As the communion of saints implies, perfect beatitude is social rather than individualistic. The church triumphant isn't regarded by the tradition as a long row of hermitages, but as a chivitas, a city united by perfect fellowship and love in the new creation. In Milton's sublime phrase, quote, About him all the sanctities of heaven stood thick as stars, and from his sight received beatitude past utterance. Unquote. In keeping with the New Testament, Aquinas says we're called to become fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Given this and our irreducibly social identity, it follows that even if, as the New Testament says, here we have no lasting city, it would be wrong to think that our earthly city is unimportant to who we are or what we care about, either in this life or in the life to come. Thank you.